an 8-bit Rocket Studios production. We were children of the Silicon Revolution, conscripted to fight the home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world 8 bits at a time. We proceeded into the vertical blank, devising incantations from beginner's all-purpose symbolic instruction code, wielding runes of ASCII wizardry 40 columns at a time from our full-stroke keyboards. Video games were the match, programming was the fuse, and the infinite possibilities at our fingertips became the flame that lit our future into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. Hi, and welcome to Enter the Vertical Blank, Generation Atari, Season 3, Episode 2, Dan Kitchen Interview, Part 1, Dan Kitchen and the Rise of the Kitchen Brothers. In our quest to discover the secrets of programming 8- and 16-bit computers this season, we caught up with Dan Kitchen, a true survivor of the 80s video game crash, still making games today. In fact, he's on a quest to build and publish a brand new set of games for the Atari VCS in the spirit of Activision, the company that he and his brothers Gary and Steve once worked for and ran the East Coast branch. We catch up with Steve Fulton, Fultonbot, and Dan talking about Dan's new game and then start to dig into the history of the Kitchen Brothers. Okay, so you're getting back into 2600 programming. What? Why? Why are you doing that? Um, you know, I had found, about a year and a half ago, I found a cartridge of Keystone Capers 2 that I had started writing back in 1983. Um, strangely, as the story goes, is about three months before that time, Gary showed me that, hey, I found this, uh, this web-based tool that allows you to code 2600 games. Oh yeah. And I said this is really neat. I love that. Is that 8-bit workshop? It is. Yeah, and I yeah. started playing with it and said, "Oh, that's pretty cool." Um, I thought to myself, I remember I started Keystone Capers 2. Um, I don't know where it is. It's, you know, I made a cartridge of it 30 some years ago. I've always mentioned to John Hardy and the other folks at the National Video Game Museum that I have this cartridge. If I ever find it, I'll show it to you. And after 20 or so years of saying that, they said I was full of crap. You, know, <laughs> you don't have that. So when Gary showed me this tool, I said, I'm going to try to recreate what I have in my memory as that game. Oh, cool. And I started writing it. And about two and a half months later, cleaning out my offsite storage, and I find the prototype cartridge. Oh, wow. That had vanished for 35 years. Um, Immediately, I called John Hardy at the National Video Game Museum, who happened to be in Long Island visiting with his mother. So he wasn't that far away. I think he was in Queens. So he said to me on the phone, he said, hold on, I'm going to drive over there tonight. So he drove over to my place that night. We plugged it in. 
and it came up exactly as I had recalled. Um, and what was stunning was that comparing that to the new code I was writing, it was almost identical, and my new code even looked better. <laughs> well, you've had a lot of practice since then. I must have gotten better on the machine. Uh, so uh, I eventually did donate the cartridge to John and the folks at the museum. Oh, that's nice. And realized, realized that, you know, I'd love to get this done. And about that time, I noticed, oh, my God, there's a lot of homebrew people keeping this machine alive. Yep. Oh, and I thought that was really cool. Um, and I said, you know, I think I'm going to finish this little prototype I was playing with on the 8-Bit Workshop. And I'm going to actually recreate the game that I had envisioned. Uh, I'm not going to call it Keystone Capers 2 because I don't have the rights. I'm not going to use Keystone Kelly. But I will create Keystone's Irish cousin, who is based in, based in, the, in the Old West, uh, Casey O'Kelly. And he's working on a railroad, kind of doing the same cop and robber thing. Right. And so Gold Rush was born. And I am now uh, literally finishing up the project. Oh, that's to great. To have, have it released this year. Now, the pictures of it are beautiful. I mean, it looks amazing. Um, Thank you. Let me ask you a question about that, because this podcast is somewhat veering its way into programming away from, well, I mean, it's always been there, but it's away from just Atari memories and stuff, but, you know, to homebrew and uh, 2600 and 8-bit and 7800, and etc. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting is games that scroll horizontally feel like they're easier to create on the 2600. I just want to get your opinion on that as opposed to games that scroll vertically or getting good detail on horizontal scrolling games. Well, keep in mind, the game doesn't really scroll horizontally. Like Pitfall, it is a screen-to-screen -screen game. Okay. It gives the illusion of scrolling because I have uh, a number of planes that are moving at different rates of speed. Right. So I have the mountains, I have the cacti, I have dirt on the desert, I have uh, railroad ties, and they all give the illusion at different speeds that it is a scrolling screen. But you're actually jumping from screen to screen, not unlike Dave did in Pitfall and Pitfall 2, and Gary did in Keystone Capers. Um, horizontal scrolling is very difficult, um, only because you can certainly do it, but we at Activision never like to move the playfield uh, one pixel one clock at a time because it actually moved the whole uh since one one bit in the playfield register equaled four bits on the screen or four clocks we thought it looked too clunky to scroll it four chunks at a time right um it's not that difficult to do vertical scrolling and it actually will come off much nicer uh because you can scroll playfield vertically one one uh, uh one line at a time as you move a pointer through the data and simply update each line of playfield. So, so question. You're right. I, I guess I'm, I misspoke. It's not necessarily scrolling, but the illusion of scrolling horizontally. So, take a game like Chopper Command or Grand Prix, where they definitely look like they're scrolling horizontally. I know you didn't program those games, but do you have any insight into how the illusion was created of scrolling? Um, and is that similar to what you're using? Oh, sure. Um, uh, what Bob had done in, in that game is he, he had a beautiful kernel that did mountains in playfield and masked them on either side with players. So in essence, he could take the whole chunk of the mountains and move them one pixel at a time. And your, your background, mountains are actually popping every four pixels, but 
in essence, the play the players in front of them are masking that. Right. So the players move one, two, three, four. Boom! The chunk of playfield moves. I'm actually doing the identical thing with my mountains in the background. What Bob also did is he had a, an orange background that was static, and he had trucks at the bottom that moved at a constant rate, scrolled left and right. So he, in essence, didn't have anything necessarily scrolling from screen to screen, but he gave a phenomenal illusion that you were flying from screen to flying uh, seamlessly left and right. Right from screen. That's cool. And I guess a lot of those tricks are how those things were achieved, right? I mean, it's you know the illusion of scrolling might as well be scrolling in this case. Um, right, right. So when you got your cartridge, that must have been pretty exciting when you when you found it in storage. Um, did you dump it and work on the code in a bit workshop or did you just continue using the code that you, that you were building, uh, from memory? Um, I didn't dump the ROM. Um, I actually didn't have the wherewithal to dump it. It was a few months later when I went to the let's play, um, expo as a guest speaker down in Texas that I met with, uh, John, that I met with John down there. And uh, and we both dumped the code and looked at it. Um, I actually, after looking at the ROM itself, uh, vis- visibly on the screen, I just continued to write the code as I had started in 8-Bit Workshop. Oh, that's cool. So none of none of this game has any of the code from the original Activision cartridge. Sure. So it's so you can you can essentially say you own it all, no matter what, right? And that's correct. That's I own cool. it all. That's exactly right. And I didn't want to infringe upon their code at all in any in any way. Right, right. You know, who knows if they would care or not, but it doesn't really matter. It's your work now. So how do you, do you like 8-Bit Workshop? I, I think that's a, an incredible site. Um, it, it is. It's an incredible tool. I love how you can make changes in real time. Um, it's it's a great tool. It gets, it gets really funky if you're doing bank switching. Yes. Um, and it obviously doesn't really have... Uh, the kind of debugging that Stella has as an emulator. So I, when I got past the 4K boundary, I, I just went to a standard text editor and the Diasm assembler and just ran my code in Stella. Got it. Cool. I mean, that, I guess, have you tried anything like uh, be Atari Basic or Atari 7800 Basic or any of those like uh, sort of macro basics on top of assembly language? No, I, I'm a purist, um, and, and actually, I know a lot of the games these days are being written by phenomenal designers who are using Dave's DPC chip yep. and and other other uh, hardware enhancing ways. Uh, I'm writing it in straight 6502 as if I had done in 1983. Um, no extra RAM, no extra processing on the board or anything. I'm still dealing with 128 bytes of RAM. Um, so I'm I'm a purist at heart. I'm only going to be writing my my 2600 games in in pure 6502 and and doing the old methods that I had learned originally at Activision. That's really cool. Um, so you are releasing Gold Rush when and is is it kickstarting soon? You know it is. It was kickstarting in the next month and a half, but I have seen some people on Kickstarter have been delaying their kickstarting campaigns because of the coronavirus. Um, I guess they're concerned about people focusing, uh, people having um, uh, extra money at this time, because I know a lot of us are going to be impacted financially. Sure, yeah. So uh, I'm, I think the release may be pushed back in the year based upon that. Um, I was hoping to have the game 
were manufactured and released sometime at the middle to end of summer, but it may go into the autumn now if 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 this slows down the world economy and and we need to give people a chance to to get their financial priorities in in, in yeah, place. That's a good point. How how are you planning to publish it? Are you is is someone building all the carts for you? Or are you doing it yourself? Um, well, you know, I, I've I'm going to be releasing the game under the Tiki Vision label. Okay. Um, my development company, separate from this game, is Tiki Interactive, and I do a lot of um, development work in the game space for online game clients and packaged goods clients. So I'm, I've picked up a lot of the work that Skyworks used to do in the Avergame field. Yep. Um, yeah, I create products for for GAF and for the Home Depot or Showtime or Hellman's Mayonnaise. And these are the little, little games you see on your phone and on Snapchat and other other social media areas. Sure, of course. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. How are you, What development tools are you using for those? What is your what is your current, uh, you know, programming uh, environment look like when you're building that stuff? Uh, for those working in in uh, in in, in uh, JavaScript, um, and for they some HTML5 of the five games or yes, HTML five awesome, games awesome. for some of the bigger titles working in in Unity, um, but mostly for those kind of games, it's HTML five. Are they Canvas games or or CSS? Uh, canvas. Awesome. How do you like the canvas? I think it's a it's a good environment. I, I mean, I I very much dig use uh, working with it. I think it's uh, it's interesting to go through the to be doing that and then to kick back in the evening and sit down with a with a Stella and start racing the raster across. Oh, the that's screen. really cool. Yeah, it's I, kind of a my, different mythology. My brother and I wrote the first book on the canvas for O'Reilly back in 2011. So oh, very we, we cool. We researched it. Um, when Flash was dying, and and we said well, this is going to be the thing, and so we we wrote that. Wrote, did that. Anyway, I'm just saying that because I like the canvas. I haven't done it in a really long time, but I I, I feel happy that you are using that as your development. That, that's that's cool. Okay, so enough enough about that. We, we we need to we need to talk about how you became a programmer. So I notice on your website uh, we go. It starts. Is it start at the Apple II or start at the twenty six hundred? I don't know if it, I'm looking at the left or right when I'm on your credits. Call it when your credits. So page. It, it it starts at the uh, Apple II. All right. So Apple II. I know I played Crystal Caverns. Um, it looks like uh, little computer people and game maker and designers pencil. Those are things you program for the Apple. They came later too, right? Those are in the mid eighties. Yeah, they well they did. The um, uh, we started. Uh, I got an Apple in. Well, Gary got an Apple in probably 1980, uh, Christmas 1980. Actually, no, it was earlier than that. It was earlier in the year. I got myself one sometime in mid-year 1980. Uh, he was already learning to program. Um, I started to learn and taught myself 6502. Now, what's the age and, difference between you guys? Uh, six years. Gary's six, older than I am. Gary's, and, and so you guys had decided... Did you go to school for engineering or anything, or did you just decide you wanted to start programming? No, Gary had gone to school for uh, uh, for artwork, actually. Beautiful. Um, and uh, he's an incredible artist. And at that point, our older brother, Steve, who was a super-duper engineer, was working for a development company in New Jersey who happened to be making um, a lot of electronic toy prototypes. And so he started to get into the electronic toy business, 
in the 70s when we had Mattel football and things like that. Yes. And he eventually, um, Gary switched his major to uh, to engineering. Uh, I ended up going to school at night for engineering because I was enrolled to start college and then Steve offered me a job and I didn't want to, I couldn't turn it down. Oh, so I switched all my classes to night classes. And at that engineering firm, uh, we did a lot of game design, electronic toy design, created a lot of prototypes. Uh, we worked on the um, um, Parker Brothers Wildfire pinball game. Was I one saw of the games that on that, Gary's website. It looked amazing. Yep. Very cool. So actually, that was a concept brought to uh, brought to Parker Brothers uh, by uh, by a group of game designers, and then they needed someone to implement it. And so we designed the hardware. Steve designed the hardware. Uh, Gary and Steve wrote the code. I was a I was the engineer on it, the technician, wiring up all the boards, getting them all working. And uh, then at one point, Gary had a brilliant idea for for an electronic billiard game in a similar vein with LEDs. So he created and patented the bank shot game which we successfully sold to Parker Brothers. Um, we had to write the code in 4-bit dedicated microprocessors for the chips that were inside of them. So we would get like a computer from TI that was the size of a desk with a monitor and a printer, and we'd sit there and bang out code in 4-bit microprocessor wow. to light up the LEDs and do the logic. And uh, compared with the, the, the debugging we had today, uh, back then, we would have to design a board uh, to run the electronics and run all the LEDs. And inherently, the code was probably, God, the code was small. And I do, I don't remember the exact size, but we used to have to burn about eight individual EPROMs to plug it into the board to see if the edit that you created worked. So you'd write code all day. And you'd get a listing and you'd go through your code with your pen and make sure it looked right. Then you'd sit there and you'd burn 80 prompts, plug them into the board and see if the LEDs light up. And if they don't, you have to go back and play <laughs> play computer because there was no debugging. Oh, um, so we did that design and then we left that firm. Uh, Steve left first and went to California to pursue uh, some other, other things out there. And it was at that firm that um, the owner, who was Steve's partner at the time, um, started to look into other toy businesses and Gary and I suggested hey the Atari 2600 is out Atari's done games forever and um, and uh, act these Activision guys do these phenomenal games so we'd like to get involved so Gary in essence back engineered the Atari and started to write a game which was called Space Jockey and oh yes the, Space yep. Jockey Steve, we can barely see your head. Anyway, this hi, is- how are you? Oh, You're Jeff. Hey. Um, how's it going, Dan? Uh, this is Jeff. Yeah, nice to meet you, man. I, I, I think I've met you before at at a E3. Steve, no, no, we- that was Gary. Oh, it was Gary? I'm sorry. Your brother was hanging out with the uh, Activision guys in the, what was the name of the company? Skyworks. We do work with Skyworks. 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 Yeah. Did you? We know hired them at Mattel to do much. So stuff. Dan, by the way, builds games with the HTML canvas right now. So I, I, I told him. Woo! That- <laughs> anyway. He does not need our book. He no. probably has. Um, he probably is using. Uh, <laughs> no, no, he doesn't. He's probably, he's probably oh, using the other his thing, own. Just to catch you up, Jeff is Dan was is, was is programming Gold Rush. You know the sequel to Kids. I saw. Yes, but I've he's seen doing that, it with Eight Bit Workshop. The, well, no, I I started it I with Eight Bit Workshop. Sorry, started. I, I'm now writing it just in a regular text editor with uh, 
with an assembler and 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 running the code in Stella uh, when it's not sitting in a in a in a board in the Retron seventy seven. That's really cool. Does Steve over there at Eight Bit Workshop know that you had you had done that? I think he'd be pretty excited if he knew that you at least started that way. I wrote him at one point because I had questions about it. Um, I think I told him who I was, but may not have told him about the project. I'll probably reach out to him and let him know that that it was a tremendous uh, uh, springboard, and I used it and it worked well. And unfortunately, the code has become so large that I've I've had to spring off to just、oh. keeping it my own way and. In 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 the number of banks that I've been using, that's in, cool. Try to win, try to encourage you into making an Atari eight bit version, Atari eight bit computer version. So I, I would like to do that. <laughs> so we were Dan was ju- just now starting to talk about twenty six hundred development.、Um, okay, sorry, sorry. sorry. So go no、ahead. worries, no worries. So, so space, space jockey, Gary, right? Space so Gary、jockey. had created Space Jockey, and it was sold through that company to U.S. Games, and、uh, it did very well for for them. And and Gary and I were very happy. With the sales of that, but we we were getting the itch to expand on our own. We had we had been very involved in the computer scene in New Jersey, at the computer clubs, at Creative Computing, at、uh, Software City that had sprung up at various stores, and we're getting known as the Kitchen Brothers. So Gary and I decided to leave there with a couple of other chaps, and start a company in his basement called ISS. And it's there that we did six games, which I had just recently posted on my blog. Um, for Hayden Software、uh, in Rochelle Park, New Jersey,、um, we started. Actually, we met those folks because they reached out to us through one of our contacts at Creative Computing in Morristown, New Jersey, and、uh, they wanted us to convert from、uh, Apple. from Apple to Atari 800, a reversal Othello game, which we did. And then、uh, they started talking to us about other games, and we said, "Hey, we have these games in development for Apple," and we signed a six-product deal for them, and created the six products that are up on up on my blog. And it was during that time that Steve had,、uh, who was also in the still in the electronic toy business, had been approached by Coleco to find someone、uh, to write the Atari 2600 version of Donkey Kong. Right. And he knew Gary did Space Jockey, and Gary was the right guy. So、uh, Gary wrote that、um, while he was also working on these one of these six、uh, Hayden games for the Apple, and I was sitting there writing two of the、uh, Hayden games and beginning to pick up on the twenty six hundred and started writing my own twenty six hundred game. So on the Hayden games, are you talking about Crystal Caverns, Crime Stopper,、yep. Bell Hop? Kamikaze was looks very interesting.、Um, I mean, they all look interesting. Sh-、uh, Shuttle Intercept, which is these all are so Apple II like. You know, I read they are. They, they are the art. I just have these great memories of our friends Apple IIs before we got the Atari 100. Yeah, it, it, that was a fun machine to work on, and and it was also the ability for us to spring lo- spring load、uh, sp- spring forward into our our、uh, 2600 development because we didn't have any dev systems. What Gary and I had done at the original company to do to do Space Jockey is we designed a a, a 2K board that、uh, was a peripheral Apple board. We put 2K of memory on it, and we developed it so you could plug it into the Apple. It had a ribbon cable coming out, which I soldered into an old Atari cartridge board, plugged it into the 2600, and we could write 6502 in the Apple, and then hit a control key. Download it into the 2K RAM on the board, flip on the Atari, and see what came up. 
Oh, cool. And that was our dev system at the time. So two, only doing 2K of RAM uh, to take place of the ROM on the car, right? Not 2K of RAM, like a supercharger no, or whatever. Sorry. 2K of, of RAM replicated the 2K of ROM yeah, in the cartridge. And so, actually, I, on my, I think on one of my posts, Gary posted a couple of images of, of those boards he still had. Did Steve ever do any 2600 programming, or, or was he out of it? No, he did. Um, when uh, After Gary and I, uh, well, when Gary was doing the ColecoVision version of Donkey Kong, Steve had also secured a contract for himself to do Carnival. So Steve oh, wrote yes. the Carnival on the 2600. He then wrote uh, Donkey Kong Jr. on the 2600. And when Gary and I will, were full-fledged at Activision, um, he approached us and approached Tom Lopez at Activision and said, I want to do a space shuttle game. And so as a contractor, he wrote the 2600 Space Shuttle oh, for wow. Activision. So all three you guys, do you guys get along as brothers? You know, we're kind of out of touch with Steve these days. Oh, but cool. uh, yes, we, we we all in essence still still get along. Steve, I speak to Gary on a regular basis. Steve older or younger? Than- Steve is 10 years older than me. Uh, so it's Steve at the top, Gary in the middle me at the bottom. I just want to say, so right now when I, I think I opened this let's say 1980, let's say this is 82 I think I opened the catalog for US Games. Right. And I remember, I believe Gary's name was associated with it in there and then I remember seeing your and his name associated with games in the Activision catalog and it clicked in because Jeff and I are brothers and I'm like oh my god there are other brothers out there who are (laughs) really excited about programming because we were like 12 years old but we we so wanted to learn how to program and do stuff and so I just want to say that like the fact that you guys existed was like a it was like uh, you know inspiration. It's like oh and my the fact god, that they would list your names. Too. Yeah, that they would list your name in the catalog. Just just to see that was so cool because you know, obviously we didn't see anybody else's names before that, right? I mean the the Activision guys, but but nobody else. No, Atari didn't do that. So you guys have been the in the back of my mind for like thirty five years now, or however long it's been. You know, as a as hey, Kitchen Brothers, that's awesome. They're synonymous with Atari. So you go to Activision. And uh, what was the, the first game? What was the game you did there for them? Did Crackpots, obviously started Keystone Capers 2, which we put aside. And then I worked on a number of ports with Gary on Designer's Pencil, um, uh, River Raid 2. I worked on Kung Fu Master. Uh, actually, I did Kung Fu Master, Ghostbusters 2. Uh, worked on uh, Double Dragon, Akari Warriors, uh, Commando, uh, Crossbow. I did for Atari after leaving Activision. Uh, so I've got a, a number of titles uh, under my belt for the 2600. Oh, sure. So Double Dragon and Akari Warriors and Commando seem especially difficult to pull off on the 2600. What did what was your approach when you had to take such elaborate games and try, especially with lots of character animation, and, and, right. and well, try to translate them? Well, you know, the, the hardest one of all, I think, was Double Dragon was being able to do everything with one button. Um, oh, yeah. That, that, that was a challenge. And, and even Kung Fu Master, um, when I created that game, I actually used the, the NES version uh, as, as, the, uh, as the, the analog. It was sitting on my desk, and I was playing it a lot. Um, to this day, I'm not happy that jumping has to be connected to the up control, but I, I was out of buttons with just one. Sure, yeah. Um, and we faced... I faced that kind of challenge with all of those games. Um, 
Some of them like um, like Commando, Double Dragon, and Akari Warriors. Uh, I had some of the guys in the office helping write the code uh, and doing some of the display kernels because those were on really super tight crunches. Uh, ones like Ghostbusters, I wrote myself in about six weeks. It was kind of one of those. Oh, we have a we have an opportunity this Christmas. Um, do you mind sticking your whole face into a fan <laughs> and trying to get this done for us? So, so you know, that's a you know, there are other other pretty terrible stories about people doing licensed games in six weeks, as you can as you probably know. As um, I as, as I certainly know. Of them, yes. <laughs> but one thing, but though, I think on, he did an excellent job. Yeah. On Akari Warriors, I mean, Steve, on Akari Warriors, we were just we played it maybe about six months ago. Steve came over to my house and we we're playing Akari Warriors on the Retron 77. Yes. And we were, we, uh, th- there are places in a car warriors where the, um, you know, the terrain is mirrored, right? Left to yeah. right, the places where it isn't. And so yes. it's like, we're like, how the hell did he do that? And of course, <laughs> you know, um, cause a command and commando, the commando looks awesome. I mean, every single, every single line you've changed his colors, you know, so. Oh, sure. Um, so th- I know all the trees, you're doing all the tricks in the book you can think of at the time. It looks really good. So. Um, and, and I'm still doing those with Gold Rush. I'm I'm okay. doing even a few a few new tricks, um, still using just the 2600 as the hardware, and so not any not, other supporting. Not using, um, the uh, what is nope. the David no. Crane D- the David Crane chip DPC plus or anything like that, or so the, can the you, David Patrick Crane chip. Yeah, can chip you tell well. us a little bit about that chip, about what it was, and 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 maybe what it even cost back in the day, if you know anything about that, and 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 how it came about. It was expensive. I mean, it came about because Activision wanted Dave to replicate uh, a sequel to Pitfall. And he wanted it to be incredibly exponentially better than the first one. And the only way to do that was to give himself a leg up on the hardware. And so he designed a chip. Uh, I haven't used it, but I'm, I'm aware of what it essentially does is if you're writing a kernel and you're doing like a, a load and direct in a store, so, you know, to some graphic... Uh, uh, um, register, you know, that, that'll take eight cycles. You know, load and direct is five, a store is, and so you only have 76 cycles across the line. So you do that with two players and some background data and a missile or two, and, you, and you're getting pretty packed. This actually allows you to do fetches from the memory in only two cycles as opposed to five cycles. And so it saves a tremendous amount of cycle time, which then frees you up that you can change colors of things you couldn't do before. Um, you could do various effects with some of the objects by magnifying and shifting them because before you were consuming all the cycles, simply loading and fetching and storing the data. So uh, it also gave you the ability to have an external sound chip. So the music you hear in Pitfall 2 is actually from the Pitfall uh, cartoon series that oh, wow. uh, was in development at, at the time. So is this, and, and you know, so was, do you know if this was the first time someone put extra hardware in a cartridge to get special effects and, and, and better processing? I don't believe it was. It, it may have been the first time to get better processing. processing. I believe there were other effect chips put in. There were RAM plus chips, but, the, right. but you never know about the um, about effects, right? Like the reason, correct. The reason why I ask is because it feels like you, you did you did a lot of NES programming, right? Yes. Um, that the NES basically was rampant with this, where the cartridge the cartridge just became a shell, and people started putting almost whole consoles in the cartridge. <laughs> <inside> <laughs> right. 
to, to get more to get more out of the NES. I, I may be wrong about that, but I would see if you what, what you thought about that. Um, we had actually in our NES programming, uh, we stayed pretty much in the standard configuration simply because of the cost. Oh yeah. Um, you know, you were buying it from Nintendo, and uh, I forget what the OEM was then. Maybe it was like eight bucks or so, uh, something around there, five six dollars per cart. You know, and you're building a hundred thousand pieces. Um, you're going to try to keep it to the smallest configuration you can to limit your risk. So, but I know that there were things done in those days and in the days of the Atari, possibly after the DPC that 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 helped. You know, there was that there was the what was the one that allowed you to break into the code and see the see the zero page memory. Um, you plugged the cartridge into this thing that plugged into the Atari twenty six hundred supercharger. Maybe it was yeah, oh, the supercharger, right? right yeah. Of course. Yes, but uh, that was, to my knowledge, the only uh, game that we did with DPC. It just wasn't really uh, economically feasible after that because the Atari wasn't selling very well, and we had moved on to other platforms. Sure, you weren't selling many units. Yeah. Do you know how many, you know, roughly how many units of those later Activision games were sold, the ones that were done after 84? Well, I can tell you that a lot of them were never meant to ever come out. <laughs> um, Bob had wrote... Uh, um, Skyjinx early on and never never released it it was just put on the shelf he didn't like it it wasn't good enough um, Bob had also wrote uh, the original kernels for uh, Private Eye and shelved it something he didn't expect to ever finish um, I know that um, I think Dave had done that with another title as well well John Van Ryzen who did Hero who worked with us for John's first game was Cosmic Commuter. And we just didn't feel it was up to snuff, and he shelved it and went on to design what is one of the best games on the system, which is Hero. Um, so, uh, Oh, yeah. That that cart oh. is incredibly expensive to get. I got, not incredibly, like thousands, but to find a crappy cart with no label on it, I spent $75 on Really? It. Yes. <laughs> well, they, you know, that goes to show you at the end there, they weren't producing a lot. Um, I know for, for Crackpots, which came out not soon after, well, not even at the height of the uh, crash, um, there was a television commercial that was done, which is on my website, and I think it only ran for a very brief time. So they were they were really cutting back on, on, on a, anything they were doing to support the games and even to build the games. There is, there is a TV commercial on your site, and there's yes. a dude in a... In a Oh, it's, it's, it's a bug you're dropping a crack up, crack, crack, dropping the pot on. Yes, correct. It's a cool game, actually. I love. Thank it. you. So the the great thing about uh, Activision, every line, if you were if you wrote your a single line kernel, you could change the colors in every line, and you can make things look really great in these in these vertical, horizontal lines on and vertically, right? Like everything could look incredible going down the screen with different colors, right. different graphics, but not horizontally. But that was like active. Like no one really knew. Like like when we first saw that, we didn't know that was the trick. All you saw was that Activision had many more colors that it looked awesome on the screen. Right. That's right. And it was just simply how we used the 128 colors. And Atari had their own set of colors, but never really did shading or use them appropriately, like we did at Activision. And the funny thing about the the Donkey Kong story is that after we we met with Activision. Uh, the initial very quick rendition of the story is Gary had called Activision because we were so enamored by their games, having played skiing as the first one, 
we were we were fanboys of the four guys. We you know we <laughs> got the catalogs. At one point in the basement office we had in Gary's basement, we took out the the catalog with Bob, uh, Al, Larry, and Dave, and Gary drew our faces over their faces. <laughs> And put it up on the wall right over my Apple II and said, we will be those guys someday. That's awesome. And then right before the CES, I guess it was of 82, or I'm sorry, the CES January 82, um, Gary called them and said, you know, I'd like to set up an appointment to meet with somebody. And I'd like to speak to somebody about game development. And they didn't know what the hell to make of that call. And they eventually sent him to Tom Lopez, who was the VP of product development. And Gary said, hi, I want to talk to you about, you know, games. I make Atari 2600 games. And Tom's immediate response was, no, you don't. No, you don't. Yeah, we're, we only we do that. <laughs> only we do that. Um, and so that led us to a wonderful meeting at, at CES and a wonderful on, uh, meeting in Gary's basement. So one thing I'll say is, though, that we in the arcade were never good enough to get to the, the, the third or fourth screen. <laughs> sure. So to us... That was the greatest cartridge we had for a year. It's like because you could get to the second screen. Because I could get to the second screen, like, and it was fun. It was like so. I we never had any problem. I, I that's a game that I think for some reason gets some unrealistic dislike. Um, well, yeah, it, it does because there's the rumor, the urban myth that oh, Coleco didn't make that as good as the Coleco version, so they could sell more of the Coleco version. Where in reality, Gary squeezed every everything he could. I think um, we so we kind of covered this the first episode of this season three. We talked about VCS Pac Man and how it was is really perception that was the problem, um, right? Mostly from the from the from the media. So the media perce- nobody really knew the capabilities of the twenty six hundred up until that time. I think that no one really delved into hardware and really from the from the press and the in the public side. So mm-hmm. I think like a Pac-Man and then a Donkey Kong were surprises because nobody knew what, what the systems could do. And, mm-hmm. and so all of a sudden like, Oh, wait a minute. They're, they're not, they can't replicate what we thought they could. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that was more of the problem of a problem of perception than a problem of the people who programmed these games. Understood. Um, yes. And in, I agree. And this is where we end part one of the Dan Kitchen interview. In part two, we get into deeper topics, including Gary Kitchen's Game Maker, which Dan ported to the Apple II and created all of the demo games for both the Apple and Commodore versions. It's also a piece of software that as an Atari 800 user, we were very jealous of not having on our own machine. Okay, until next time, Get ready for the second part of this incredibly exciting and very, very informative interview with Dan Kitchen. Into the vertical blank.
into the vertical blank. Next frame calculated. Prepare to write new data. V blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.